Comes from Waterfront Concerts, presenting Mo and Government Mule on the Bangor Waterfront this Thursday. Tickets and information at waterfrontconcerts.com or 1-800-745-3000. The time is 10.01 and you are tuned to WERU-FM. 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online everywhere at weru.org. Democracy Forum with your host Ann Luther is up next. Good morning. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the sixth program in our 2012 series to be broadcast at this time on the second Monday of each month. We're featuring topics in participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about wealth and income inequality in the U.S., and why it matters for democracy. We'll be discussing the widening gap in wealth and income separating the ultra-rich from everyone else, and we'll learn what is causing this trend and what are the consequences for democracy and the general well-being. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum, and let me introduce our very special guests today. Joining us by telephone... Experience. I was at a... Hello? 40th high school reunion. We're on the air. And Can you hear me? My class was... Susan? You know, people were... S- Susan, we're on the air. Joining Hello. us, Join us by telephone today is Professor Susan Finer. Susan is Professor of Women's and Gender Studies and Professor of Economics at the University of Southern Maine. She is one of the founding scholars in the field of feminist economics, most recently the author of the award-winning Liberating Economics, Feminist Perspectives on Families, Work, and Globalization. Feiner has been director of the University of Southern Maine Women's and Gender Studies program since September of 2003. Welcome, Susan. Hello. Thank you for having me. Also joining us by phone today from Boston is Dr. Richard Freeman. Richard holds the Herbert Asherman Chair in Economics at Harvard University. He is currently serving as faculty co-director of the Labor and Work-Life Program at the Harvard Law School. He directs the National Bureau of Economic Research, Sloan Science Engineering Workforce Projects, and is Senior Research Fellow in Labor Markets at the London School of Economics Center for Economic Performance. Thank you for joining us today, Richard. Pleasure to be here. The concentration of income at the top of the ladder has reached levels not seen since 1929. This is largely a development within the last generation. Since 1979, incomes in the top 1% have gone up 250%, where incomes in the lower ranges have increased only 18%. Has the surging wealth and income of the top 1% reached a tipping point at which their political power outweighs the influence of the electorate at large? Are we experiencing a feedback loop in which public policy creates wealth for the few and a wealthy few dictate public policy for their own interests? This is the kind of conversation we're going to have today. And where does that leave the rest of us? So, Richard, let me throw the first question to you and ask if you can give our listeners a basic outline of what's happening. What is income inequality, and what have been the trends over the last century? 
we're normally referring to income inequality from uh, working and from ownership of capital, and uh, usually done before taxes. Taxes do a little bit to reduce the inequality, but not not that much. And, it, uh, and the, in, the inequality is sometimes measured by taking like the upper one percent relative to other people. Actually, if you look at it, it's in the upper 1%. There's been massive increase in inequality. So I like to think of it as there are these billionaires out there. And of course, they're the ones you read about funding super PACs and, and doing the, the political stuff. So it's inequality within the upper 1% that is, uh, has risen as much or more as the, as, as the inequality between the upper 1% and the rest of the society. This is a really massive change in, our, in the nature of the U.S. Uh, economy. Susan, what would you add to that? What I would add to that is that there are, it's a real mistake to ignore the race and gender dimensions of that inequality. The billionaires that Richard is talking about are pretty much exclusively white men. And um, as a result, when you're talking about, <laughs> it's like equal opportunity for all the white male billionaires. Um, so that the kinds of gains we've seen in civil liberties and women's rights, that's really all pretty irrelevant to this class of people. It's, a, it's not just a very, very few people. They're remarkably homogeneous. Mm-hmm. Now, are wealth and income inequality the same thing, or for this discussion, should we be differenti- differentiating? Well, there is much greater inequality in wealth than there is in income. Income is what you, you earn every year, and you report on your tax forms as your income this year. Wealth uh, is all the properties, the other things that you may uh, own, and some of which earns you some income. But the inequality in wealth is far greater than the inequality in income. So the small number of people at the top of the distribution own extraordinary fractions of, of the U.S. I always think of these people when they go somewhere, sort of saying, well, I own the country. And, and in, a, in a very real sense, they own ordinary fraction of the country, the, the in, in income inequality is less than wealth inequality. Is wealth inequality growing the same way that income inequality is growing? Yes, yes and it's possibly grow, it's growing even more. There was just this report from the Federal Reserve that reported that the wealth of the upper whatever percent, I've forgotten what percent they looked at, went up, and the wealth of the average American over the last uh, I think 2007, probably 2011, uh, that that has fallen. That made headlines in a whole bunch of newspapers. So, and the income inequality had also grown a bit over this period, but nowhere near the wealth inequality. Susan, right. I... one of the things that that drive that's really important to understand about the wealth inequality is that if you take away whatever equity people have in their homes then the vast majority of Americans have no wealth. Because for most Americans, 
the wealth is what they manage to build up in terms of the appreciation of the value of their home. But for the top 1%, the value of the home might be actually insignificant compared to the value of their financial assets. So that was what was contributing to the headline that Richard referred to, where the wealth of average Americans dropped like 40% or That's something. correct, the housing prices. And this is very different than, than the Great Depression after the last big crash that we had. Because there, uh, the financial wealth fell for for, for extended period. Here, the financial wealth has recuperated, mm-hmm. whereas the housing wealth, has stayed down, and of course, in the, in the, in the, if you go back in the history, the, in the 1930s, not that many people had houses, so average person didn't have much wealth to lose. Here, we had accumulated wealth from the growth of the economy and the death of the society, the 50s, 60s, 70s, um, and it's all gone, gone down. So, am I correct that this trend, the diverging wealth and income trend, that that has accelerated over the last 30 years, and why is it happening so much faster now than it was in the period between the end of World War II and the beginning of the 70s? What's changed? Well, a number of things have changed. Um, We today have a much more global economy. It turns out a global economy greatly benefits people uh, with business assets and financial assets, um, and doesn't benefit average person that much. And then we have a tremendous institutional change. The financial sector has been freed to speculate and uh, do whatever it, uh, it wants to a point, and uh, we bailed out the banks. And we didn't bail out average people that much. Um, and then we, we no longer have strong union movements and, and other movements of, of normal citizens that would be uh, you know, sort of balance off the, this increased power of the wealthy. Do you want to add right. to that, Susan? Right. And part of the institutional change has been the tremendous propaganda um, machine of the elite which has convinced many, many people and certainly many politicians that inflation and deficits, which are essentially financial issues, are far more important than the issues of full employment and decent wages. And so the institutional arrangements that we saw from the end of World War II through roughly 1980 were really rooted in that political commitment to full employment and decent wages. And uh, the, the deregulation and the freeing of the financial industry is uh, following that political and ideological shift which casts inflation and deficits as the much bigger economic problem, which they're not for the vast majority of people. I'd like to talk a little bit about the union phenomenon. I heard somebody on the radio yesterday discussing this as sort of a major factor in the erosion of middle-class incomes. And I'd also heard that in the election that just played out in Wisconsin, the recall of Scott Walker, that um, the anti-union sentiment there was 
you know, wage earning people in non-union settings feeling jealous of um, people in public sector unions that had so much better benefits. So people who are stuck in this um, uh, sort of uh, the low end of the bifurcation of wealth and income are not jealous of the people at the high end of the of the income sector. They're jealous of their neighbors who have better benefits than them. Would you care to comment on that a little bit? Well, I think there's a, from the uh, uh, psychological literature, there's this thing called the um, Stockholm effect. When you identify with the people who are responsible for your uh, terrible situation, I think it comes from having been kidnapped, and you identify with your kidnapper or your torturer. Patty <laughs> Hearst. Pardon? Patty Hearst situation. Right. That's right, Patty Hearst. And um, one of the things we have seen historically is that when people become more and more and more economically insecure, when their ability to care for themselves and care for their families becomes um, not at all a sure thing, when it's very jeopardized and uh, any little bump in the road can basically send you into homelessness or bankruptcy, um, the sense of fear and terror is probably not unlike the sense of fear and terror one has when you're being held hostage, because people are being held hostage. They're being held hostage by an economy that's being run by the 1% for the 1% and of the 1%. So it sets up a psychological um, resonance where people are systematically seeing the top as where they're going to be and who they should support rather than their neighbors. Hmm. I want to go back to the, to the Wisconsin. I think it's easy to exaggerate and vote. And, 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 uh, remember, the, the voters in Ohio, uh, six months or nine months earlier, had voted with uh, the, the unions for maintaining collective bargaining for public sector workers that state. Um, and the, the voters also in Wisconsin had uh, petitioned for the, for the recall. Um, so I think these are, uh, what's the correct word, uh, fragile uh, uh, alliances or groups. Mm -hmm. And there was a huge pouring of money into Wisconsin uh, by the uh, supporters of Governor Walker. Massive uh, set of money. I, I don't. Forty-nine million dollars. Okay, there. Thank you. And that far exceeded what the uh, the people on the other side had, and and so that that kind of thing can be changed. It's it's not that I sit there and I say, damn that policeman, he's got a pension and I don't, and my tax dollars are going to pay for him. I could have some of those sentiments, but I also can sit there and say. If the policeman has it, why don't I get it too? And maybe you're together in some uh, uh, movement or, or, or voting situation. We can both have our pensions. I mean, it's very bizarre. The country national product, what we produce, the goods and services, is bigger 
than it was 10, 15 years ago. And what has happened has been the average person has been squeezed over this 10, 15 years, and the share of the national output, that's, what, that's another way of defining the, thinking of the inequality, has gone to a very small number of people. And so they, they go and they say, oh, we can't afford uh, pensions. We can't afford school teachers. We can't afford this. And you sort of say, well, wait a minute. We, we have more goods and services. It, it is a striking thing. It's a matter of the distribution of those goods and services. It's not a matter that the, we have become a, uh, an economy that no longer produces things. We're very hardworking yeah, yeah. people. I, I think it, it gets back to this issue of ideology. Uh, in an important way, because when you hear, we can't afford this, we can't afford teachers, we can't afford to fix our roads, the word that gets invoked all the time is scarcity. We have all this scarcity, and it's scarcity because, as Richard has said, uh, all this share of national output has been grabbed by this very, very small group of people and they control what they have, and what they have is not available to the rest of us, mm-hmm. where that share of national output used to be available to all of us. And so the really big question is, what has happened that allows this group of people to capture so much more of what we all produce? So let's um, remind our listeners that we're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther, the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is wealth and income inequality in the U.S. and why it matters for democracy. Our guests this morning are Professor Susan Feiner, Professor of Economics and Professor of Women and Gender Studies at the University of Southern Maine, and Dr. Richard Freeman, the Herbert Asherman Chair in Economics at Harvard University, and director of the National Bureau of Economic Research. Before the break, Susan um, posed a question, why is this happening? And I think that's a good question for us to try to answer. Why is this happening? Hard question to answer because there are a number of possible things. I think something big happens usually isn't one single thing. If you're looking for sort of evil of... uh, of uh, conservatives uh, uh, or, or neoliberal ideology or something like that, that kind of thing contributes. The globalization contributes. It lets the wealthy people say, I'm going to move, I'm going to move this business to India or China. I'll offshore your job, so you better not ask for any wage increases. That helps. Um, there's been some technological changes that some people believe have uh, enhanced the power of the, of the, of the few. And then there, there's one thing that I was always very surprised to see how conservatives picked up on, uh, more, even certainly as much as or more so than, 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 than liberals or progressives. This is the, the issue of crony capitalism, that a small group of people use their power, influence the government, in, in ways that the government is not doing as much as it can and should do to either enforce our laws uh, on financial manipulation and uh, things like that, and, and make decisions that, that increase the chances for small businesses 
and normal citizens to compete in the marketplace against the super wealthy or the huge corporation. What do you want to add to that, Susan? Um, corporate governance, which I think is a closely related phenomenon, because I agree with what Richard's just said. One of the big shifts in the 70s and the 80s was in how the top echelons of big corporations are compensated. And it was decided, that's in quotes, it was decided, and I think economists played a nefarious role here, that tying CEO pay to short-term stock market performance um, was a good thing because it would free them up to innovate and so on. And so we got um, top pay just skyrocketing and skyrocketing, and then, of course, the deregulation in the financial sector let those salaries just hit stratospheric levels. Um, the big banking concerns, well, investment banking concerns, stopped being partnerships where they were risking their own money and were able to become um, publicly traded corporations, and so they could grab lots of uh, money from uh, other sources and had less skin in the game. So you saw this shift in corporations towards more and more uh, short-run decision-making. And short-run decision-making has uh, kind of the same kind of effect that globalization does, because it allows people to, to make these decisions that for a very little period of time, their income is going to go up, but the uh, health of the productive enterprises that they run can suffer. And when the productive enterprises suffer, then the people who do the work don't see their raises and don't see uh, their wages keep pace with what's happening at the top. So corporate governance has really uh, changed a lot for the worse over the same 30-year period that we've seen more globalization. So perhaps those are connected. Do you have a further comment, or should I ask another question, Richard? Oh, no, I'm, I, I agree. Corporate governance is a, a giant issue. That, of course, normal shareholders and, and their pension funds and so on uh, have got to, if we're going to cure some of these problems, have got to play a, a bigger role inside corporations. The current rules are such that normal shareholders do not have much say. Let me actually give an example of this because it really bothers me. Mm -hmm. um, so assume that I own uh, shares of General Motors. Um, and as a taxpayer, since the federal government actually owns shares as part of the bailout, I do, so does everyone else. Um, General Motors was giving money to this, what is it called, the Heartland Institute that was campaigning against climate change and trying to portray scientists who favor climate change as being the Unabomber. But that blew up in their face and General Motors no longer gives money. But there was no way for a shareholder to say to the corporation, no, you can't use my ownership in this for you to give money to uh, uh, organizations that I am not politically in favor of. 
I am politically in favor of, uh, of that particular place, that's, that's a different story. The same thing happened the minute we bailed out the banks. They went out and they hired, rehired uh, their lobbyists, who immediately began using our taxpayer bailout dollars to, to, to lobby the Congress for more deals for the banking industry. Um, and we, as, quote, the bailout shareholders in this case, if I can phrase it that way, we, we, we had no say in this. It's a very bizarre situation where companies can put money down without ever asking their shareholders, is this politically the way you want your company's uh, you know, money to be spent for political purposes? So if we have this um, uh, crony capitalism affecting our public policy and public policy being developed to... Um, benefit crony capitalists, where do the rest of us fit in? I mean, how does how do we get democracy to work for ordinary people again? I think it's going to be a very long and difficult uh, battle because the if I know I know if I have if I have a ten billion dollars and I'm giving to both the Democrats and the Republicans, nowadays you give more to the Republicans, uh, but, uh, big Wall Street set of money that went to Mr. Obama when they figured he was going to win the last election, um, I'm going to have tremendous influence over this. Then what I also do is I let everybody understand that after they leave Washington, guess what? They can get a good job in my company. They pay 10 times what they made in the government. But they'll only get that if they make decisions in favor of me and my company. I think it's a very difficult uh, to, to break this hole. That's the scary part. You, you referred to it early, the feedback loop, and I think that's 100% correct. I think there are ways we can, we can break it up, but it's, it's going to be a difficult uh, process because these people will use their money and their power to maintain their grip on our society. Susan? Yeah, un unfortunately, I share... Um, Richard's very pessimistic view of this. Um, the, the ability to lure people to your point of view and your side of the uh, regulatory structure when you dangle not simply millions, but probably tens of millions of dollars in pay and bonuses and privilege in front of them is, is incredible. And we see that all the time. I mean, some of the uh, stalwarts of the Democratic Party, which historically had been a party uh, much more representative of working people have um, been found to have been taking, you know, millions and millions of dollars from the financial sector and from banks, for example. And so if, I mean, if so, it's really hard to resist millions and millions and millions of dollars when people offer it to you yep. for doing something as innocuous or seemingly as innocuous as uh, maybe voting a particular way on a bill or doing something to even stop a bill 
from getting to the floor where it can be debated. I so agree. Tr- I, I had a discussion with a former Republican congressman uh, who said, let me tell you how it really works. He said he would go out of his office, and there'd be a lobbyist waiting for him. The lobbyist would have a, a part of a bill written or a part of a, an amendment to a bill. And he'd say, put this in uh, or whatever. I would say, well, I don't have time to read this. My staff doesn't know what it is. You say, well, let me let, let me explain. Uh, your district, I gave you some money last time. I'm going to double the amount of money that goes into that district, and the person who's going to get the money, the person who favors this amendment. That's really all legal way of, of saying things. Yep. Uh, so it's not a bribe, and it isn't uh, extortion. It's just telling him the facts, and then the guy walked away. Mm-hmm. This particular congressperson was very distinguished. Uh, he said at one point he got so sick of this, he started saying no, and he lost his seat yep. in, in the primary. Um, and the number of lobbyists we have in Washington far exceeds, certainly the number of representatives we have, it far exceeds the number of representatives and their staff. So you have this huge Obviously, there's some of the there's not all business groups. There are, unions have their lobbyists too, but they're they're not as big by, by any shape of the amount. The AARP has its lobbyists. Probably the League of Women Voters has a few lobbyists too. Indeed, uh, we do. Yeah, but it's it's overwhelmingly uh, the, the 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 moneyed interests have the they have the money to hire all the lobbyists. Yeah, and so. So, I mean, if we, if we could regain, uh, one of you mentioned before that there was, you know, post-World War II, this commitment to full employment and good middle-class salaries. If we could somehow regain the commitment to that and really push forward with it, I mean, what, what policies, what public policies could we call for that would start to reverse this trend? Susan? The first thing would be to restore the purchasing power of the minimum wage to where it was, say, in 1970, because part of uh, the decline in middle-income salaries, and this is one of the reasons why the decline in unions has had such a bad effect, is that union wages act as a... um, kind of an aspirational point for other people's wages. So if unions can keep wages high, then workers in other maybe non-unionized sectors uh, see those wages and push for them as well. And then uh, minimum wage puts a floor under everybody's wages so that you get some compression uh, because the wages just can't go lower than that. And what we've got right now is a minimum wage um, that's what? about two-thirds of what it was in 1970. In real dollars. In real dollars, yeah, in purchasing power. So the minimum wage would need to go from where it is now uh, to about $14 an hour. Now, how likely is that to happen? But that would be a really good thing to have happen. (laughs) If you were conservative, you'd say, oh, but that would create huge unemployment. Turns out that there are some countries, English-speaking countries, just like us, who actually have minimum wages in that $14 range. And the, 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 the one I, I know the best is Australia. 
Australia has huge minimum wage. And they're, they're, when John Howard was the prime minister, he was very much against the union. He was raising the minimum wage to convince people to vote for him. Um, they voted for him a couple of times, and they threw him out. Uh, but we don't have any of that uh, uh, uniformity where conservatives also say, hey, we're going to push them in a wage up. Also, just as a footnote, Australia has one of the lowest unemployment rates in the advanced mm-hmm. world. So it's, it's not like these kind of an increase would be um, insane. You probably would not want to have any such increase you know, one day to the next. Mm-hmm. That would create big problems, I think, for many small businesses. But, but you have a gradual theme for 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 uh, the rate raising. This, so I, I think we're going to get no serious economic change until there is a a, a major uh, political change. Because for every policy which one could suggest. Um, there will be somebody who will say, no, I don't want to pay taxes, and I'm going to use my money to make sure the politicians will get elected who will not ask me to pay for this. You want to go to college? Go into debt. Uh, Don't don't ask for the uh, the state support uh, uh, public public universities much anymore, and most states don't support them very much of money they get is declining. And coincidentally, the position of the U.S., which had been after World War II with the GI Bill, the top country in the world in terms of producing university graduates, we're now, I don't know, somewhere around 14th or 15th among the advanced countries as producing graduates per person of college age. So we can see the country sort of Losing something from uh, uh, the, the policies that it has chosen. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU FM Community Radio. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters. Our guests this morning are Professor Susan Feiner, Professor of Economics and Women's and Gender Studies at the University of Southern Maine, and Dr. Richard Freeman, Herbert Asherman Chair in Economics at Harvard University and Director of the National Bureau of Economic Research. Our topic today is wealth and income inequality in the U.S. and why it matters for democracy. We were talking about some of the public policy options that might serve to alleviate the wealth and income disparity and um, talking about whether political change came first or policy change came first. There's been a lot of talk about um, more progressivity in the tax code, ideas like the Millionaire's Amendment. Do you think that kind of a suggestion has any um, significant impact on the problem we're discussing, Susan? Yeah. Um, I think it's important to use the tax code to try and move the nation, toward, to, to move the political entity towards a more equal state of uh, income distribution. In fact, I think that's pretty much the sole function of the tax code at the federal level. Um, One of the things uh, that is really remarkable is that the period of time when the U.S. had the most robust economic growth and the 
most uh, gains for the middle class was a period of time when taxes were triple what they are today on high earners. So the idea that high taxes discourage initiative is exactly contrary to the evidence. And that's what's so frustrating, um, and it's probably a frustration that Richard and I share, is that so much of the conservative narrative about what we need to do for economic policy is exactly the opposite of what the historical record and the data show us is what's good for economic growth and the health of the middle class. So, yeah, of course, the um, uh, people at the top should be paying much more, and we should certainly uh, not be giving so much preferential treatment to unearned income. That's the income from uh, financial assets. And probably... um, yeah, I just forgot my thought, but <laughs> we should be using the uh, tax code to do exactly what you just said, Anne. Richard, tax reform, where does that fit? Well, I mean, I, I just think you, you, you do want to do tax reform. Clearly, if you close loopholes, you probably would do an immense amount of good uh, across the board, as well as make the tax code more, more, more progressive. But I think in contrast to the period of the 50s, this is where the globalization really creates a, a problem. Because if I'm a, a super rich person, and you tell me you're going to raise my taxes a lot higher than those in the um, United Kingdom, um, guess what? I will change my residence. I will do things through my corporations. So the income will appear in the United Kingdom. <laughs> not in the U.S., and you won't have gotten some, some of the money you, 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 you thought you were going to get from me. Um, and then meanwhile, I'm also going to make sure that my lobbyist puts in loopholes every, every way you're trying to, 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 to tax me. So here, I think the, the globalization and the, uh, the importance of money in politics makes it much, much harder. campaign finance reform could play in um, having an impact on this? 
Well, Citizens United has certainly been and will continue to be a disaster for uh, people trying to run who don't have the backing and support of these super billionaires. Because now, you know, like we saw in the Wisconsin case, $49 million flowing into a campaign from mostly from out-of-state people, and a lot of it not even having to be disclosed where it's coming from. So, yeah, campaign finance reform. Um, certainly the idea that corporations are people is problematic if you're concerned about democracy. Richard, what? how do you think? No, Can- I, the, the, the campaign finance reform is obviously critical because it just it exacerbates the inequality of gives money greater power. Uh, so once I have a large fraction of the GDP, now I'm able to really concentrate and do the corporations. And I haven't, I haven't seen a figure like this, but I would guess that inequality in campaign support is greater than inequality in income in the country, namely the, the, the super wealthy and the corporations are giving huge, huge sums whereas the average person doesn't give very much to that. But, but all of this is going to make it, it look hopeless. And I don't think we should uh, think that it is, it is hopeless. Because we, we, we do have tools and things that we can fight back. And it, it, in the campaign area, we do have this one wonderful uh, tool, which is the Internet provides very low-cost ways of connecting people, very low-cost ways of putting information out. And that is at least somewhat of a balancing thing. You have your billionaire, but I've got my brilliant young uh, computer guy who's going to devise these great YouTubes and things like that. And, 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 you know, and we get a great website, and we have all kinds of uh, emails go out. Lo and behold, maybe we can beat a person with lots and lots of money. We're talking about whether um, democracy in, in uh, America has reached a sort of a tipping point where the wealthy have captured political power to the point that um, ordinary people can't get it back. And we're talking about what factors could create the kind of political change that the majority of people might want in order to get control of democracy back. What do you think, Susan? How, how do we create a change in momentum here? Well, there's the formal political power of who are our Congress people and who are our senators and who are state legislators and mayors and city councilors. And that's very, very important. It's also really important to think about a kind of democracy that starts where people work. And we don't have anything like economic democracy in this country where people have some kind of uh, say in how they work and how much they're paid and what their corporations can and can't do. And I think that there's some interesting scholarship that shows that a lot of people work now in uh, places that are 
worker-owned um, enterprises and collectives and cooperatives. And I think it'd be really important for people who have progressive points of views to find out about those movements in their communities and support them. Because I think that we need to be focusing on this issue of disproportionate political power to the wealthy, both from the side of the formal political um, spectrum and from the less formal sort of grassroots worker side of the um, uh, political activities. We hear much more about the formal political side, and certainly that's where all this money is being poured. But there's, there's a lot to be said for organizing on the shop floor and for pushing for workers to have more control and more say. And, you know, we're in such a a crisis position right now that I don't think we can uh, uh, we can't afford to step back from all the places where we have some potential for promoting democracy. Yeah, it's also important to appreciate that when you have uh, firms, workplaces that have profit sharing, worker ownership, uh, other forms of pay, where every Worker benefits if the enterprise does well, rather than just the people at the top benefiting if the enterprise does well. It's, uh, those turn out to be more productive mm-hmm. and uh, and in normal enterprises. And we could see some here be a tax reform on the corporate side that would indeed give uh, um, tax advantages to firms that make sure that. Everybody's covered by the incentive system that they have, not just the CEO and the top five or ten executives and some special employees. Um, there are ways that we could, you know, strengthen this uh, workplace. Uh, I wouldn't call it democracy because you're always going to have some authority controls at a workplace, but but that would give makes everybody. Uh, involved in the workplace, it is more productive. But the problem is that it's more productive, but the sum of the money flowing to the people at the top is going to have to be redistributed if you have uh, incentives for all workers. I mean, nobody, nobody thinks, do they, that everybody should have the same amount of income? Or, I mean, there's no... I, it's not like either or. Either we have widespread disparity, or we have everybody at the same level. I mean, that's not the ideal, is that's it? That's not the issue. No. no, the 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 United States is by far the most unequal of the advanced industrial nations, and one of the horrible consequences of this large and growing inequality is that our worst social problems like cardiovascular disease, obesity, drug abuse, depression, all of these social problems get worse for everybody the more unequal your society is. So it's not as if this inequality is doing us any good. It's not. It's certainly benefiting people at the top 
way disproportionately. But even they suffer from the social consequences of all this inequality. It's really perverse. Uh, inequality makes the society worse off, and it makes everybody worse off. Now, I disagree with that. The, the billionaire who's cleaning up huge sums of money, he doesn't have to worry about any of this stuff. And I, so I, I do think it is that the, the people who are very super wealthy, they are behaving in their own interest. They have, they'll have the best doctors. They'll have the best health care thing. They, they'll have their personal trainers. They'll have all, all, all kinds of, 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 of stuff. So you can't sell them. It's very hard to sell to some super No, guy. you're right. I, I overstated that. <laughs> there are some people at the very, very top who are not affected by this. But it's not as if pretty much everybody else is, is unaffected. But even if you're very well-to-do, you're That's still correct. suffering from the problems of in, that are produced by income inequality. And, uh, I mean, where, how does this challenge the premise of democracy, you know, that the, the democracy government is supposed to operate for the benefit of the broad majority? Um, where does this kind of break down where we have democracy operating to the benefit of so very few? Well, I mean, it breaks down that if I'm going to get reelected as a congressperson or, or, or running for president or whatever I'm doing, and uh, you, you uh, offer me huge sums of money that uh, enable me to beat my opponent, yes, uh, I'm not going to be uh, you know, thinking that much about the average person. I will think a little bit, and I will think a lot more about you. Mm-hmm. Gave me huge sums, and uh, you'll give it to me again. <clears throat> or, as I said, <clears throat> that the Republican congressperson said, "We'll go to the opponent of mine, and then, and I'm out of office." I think it's it's a it's a tough uh, business. Justice Brandeis had this saying, which I won't give precisely right, but it was either you have democracy or you have massive inequality. And you can't. The two of them simply do not mix. Somebody could look that up on the Internet and find out exactly how he phrased it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's 100% uh, 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 correct. Uh, you, I would say this very mild. If we could just stop the inequality from growing and maintain the massive level we have, but then everybody would gain in the next period of time as our economy grows, that, that would be a great achievement. Uh, I fear that what's going to happen is, uh, and in this recovery, has, inequality has grown. Do we know that five years from now we're not going to have even more massive inequality? Yep. The policies that potentially are being adopted or some of our p- political parties are thinking will save the day um, are more likely to, to make that inequality worse. I would think every policy we have should be judged on is it going to increase the inequality, uh, and then it should be off the map. It should not, should not be considered because the inequality is a, is a terrible disease on the society. And then we could argue over, gee, could we reduce the inequality? And at least if it doesn't grow and the economy grows, everybody is, is benefiting together. 
we're coming down into the last few minutes of the program, so I want to ask you both if people listening to this conversation are moved to do something about it and want to pick up the phone or go to the Internet and find a resource that they can join on to. Are either of you aware of places we could go to capture the energy people might feel after listening to your advice? There are sets of places, it's very interesting, on the Internet. Um, and one of the ones that I've paid some attention to is, uh, is a, a petition site called change.org. By the way, it's a commercial site. They make money. I have no, no financial interest in it at all. That's the site that this young lady, Molly Catchpole, used when she wrote this petition against the Bank of America. Know, charging for the use of your debit card if you didn't have a high enough income. And she got the Bank of America to back off. And then this young lady also went off and then did a fight with Verizon, got them to back off. And what I've discovered is there's a set of, this is just one of the places, but there's a set of petition sites, organizations on the Internet for people to raise uh, issues, and get other people to sign in, because one thing that will indeed affect politicians and business people, if they see suddenly there's you know, 400,000 enraged citizens over an issue, they'll pay some attention. What about you, Susan? Have you got advice for our listeners? Well, a place that is very interesting and that uh, does have some tips for activism is called the equalitytrust.org. That's equalitytrust.org. Um, it has wonderful um, data that you can download that's very easy to understand. So when you go to political meetings, you can show people exactly what you mean by inequality and what some of the uh, trends in inequality are, and you can show people what the consequences of inequality are. So it's got, it's a sort of one one-stop shopping, <laughs> if you will. You can go to this site. You can read about inequality. You can read about um, various policy measures in different countries. It's pretty international. Um, so the Equality Trust is a place you can go to on the Internet that uh, will be very helpful if you want to pursue convincing more people that inequality is really a much, much more important I economic issue coming into this election than uh, deficits or austerity or gay marriage. Mm -hmm. We're just about out of time. We have time just for one last parting thought from each of you. Richard or Susan? I would like people not to go away being um, discouraged. It, 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 it's a very difficult, I think, to change the direction of the society, but societies change big jumps all at once. A lot of people have a similar views. Sometimes when I talk with uh, people on the right and people on the left, I'm amazed that, hey, they, they all have a sense that the country's not going in the right direction. And that just as the, the communist regimes in the, in, the, in the old Soviet Union just collapsed all at once, I have a feeling that we will... People will work in their work, and all of a sudden, we will start moving in a better direction. Susan, very quickly. 
Um, very quickly, I would like to just urge people to be willing to follow their dreams and aspirations for America and follow those dreams out onto the streets. And when people start to protest, to join the protest, because 400,000 voices on a petition means a lot, and 100,000 people in the streets probably means more. So this is a time when direct political action really means a lot. We are out of time. Thank you to our guest this morning, Professor Susan Feiner, Professor of Economics and Women and Gender Studies at the University of Southern Maine, and Dr. Richard Freeman, Herbert Asherman Chair in Economics at Harvard University and Director of the National Bureau of Economic Research. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM Community Radio. Thank you to Amy Brown, our engineer at WERU. Thank you to our listeners. If you have a suggestion for a topic or guests on a future Democracy Forum or to join the League, email us at www.lwvme.org or call the League of Women Voters, 622-0256. Thanks very much. Goodbye. WERU Community Radio is...